0: Good morning. good morning. Okay, so let me get in this early. As you can see, I am a brown preacher. And in my tradition, um, the faster and the more you talk back to me, the faster I get back to my seat. Okay, so if you hear something good, I know we're good Presbyterians, but you can give a amen or a good Presbyterian mm. Um, or just jot down notes. That's why I know you heard something good. So. Um, I am glad to be here. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 15 is a kind of door into God's heart. It is a moment in scripture where the reader gets a clear picture of just how far God is willing to go in order. So get back what is his. This trio of parables, as you'll see here, is penned by Dr. Luke. It will show us a side of God's character that ought not be foreign or unknown to you. Others will come to Luke 15 having forgotten this side of God. Because God has now become domesticated in your mind. Reduced to nothing more than a check off your to-do list. He is boring now because you think you have figured him all out. But there are others of you, some of you here this morning, and and you have completely written off God as some old antiquated tale. You say to yourself, God can't be what he claims to be because your position in life is simply not getting better. After all, this is what he is to you anyway, a kind of genie in a bottle. You give wishes and demands and you expect him to do what you say. Friends, there is something of God here on display that sets him apart from all things vying for your loves. Different from all the things grasping for your deepest desires and competing for your worship. And so now I come and ask you to come with me through this door to see and hear something refreshing. Something good, something there I might say. Beautiful. I want to title this sermon in our exchange. I'm glad he chased me down. Mm. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this day of life and breath in our lungs that you woke us up out of our bed. You kept us through another night of sleep. Lord, we ask for your spirit to be present in these moments. That whatever is not of you. Would it fall off now? That your word would fall on good soil. That you would help me to say the truth and nothing but the truth. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Luke 15, 1-7 is tailored to teach you and I that God is unlike anything or anyone you have ever encountered or experienced. His character is totally opposite of your favorite politician or your favorite political pundit. He doesn't compare to the latest social media influencer, cultural icon, or famous athlete. God does something. No, no, he, he is something that no one or no thing can ever be, the divine rescuer, or as the old folks would say, our help in every trouble. Okay, by that response, I can tell that I'm the only one here that believes that that's good news. (laughs) See, I know that you and I live in a time and place where everything you see and everything that you hear teaches us that you are in control of your own destiny. That life is what you want to make it. That life is in the palm of your hand and if you put in enough work, if you develop enough disciplines... If you have a little luck, and then voila, you can manifest whatever it is that you want. That that when your back is up against the wall, all you have to do is will yourself through it. Purchase your way out of it. We live in an environment that is allergic to weakness. Allergic to vulnerability. We're afraid of words like humility. Humility but I think I could take it a step further. See, I believe that our culture even teaches you and I to be allergic towards folk who look weak, folk who seem vulnerable. And rather move towards them, you are told to move closer to those who look strong, who who possess social popularity, who portray themselves as if everything is just simply perfect. And I know, I know, you know, you, you, you are good Christians, though. Some of you are saying in your head right now or, or, or wanting to preach back to me and say, oh, but but pastor. That's what those people do out there. We, we know better. We are Christians. That's that's what the pagans do. No, no, not in these walls. We don't act like that. And yeah, that may be true. Until you hear about someone's mishaps, until you come to find out about another person's past, and you just can't believe that they would ever do something like that. Regardless of if that person had been walking faithfully since that lapse in judgment or moral failure or whatever it is. You might even run into one of your Christian friends who who, who's been hanging out with some not so put together people. And all you can do is shake your head. Mm -mm -mm. Look at Johnny and Sally with them folk over there. Shame on them. They know better than that. Because according to you, Christians don't hang out with those kind of people. Friends, that's the setting. That's the backdrop of our text this morning. Jesus, being who he is, or who, at least who he's claiming to be here, is sitting and eating with some folk who were considered to be society's worst. See, according to the religious elites of his day, Jesus was on the wrong side of the tracks, chilling with the wrong kind of folk. Can't you see him? Can't you see Jesus here? There at the neighborhood fish fry, with his two-piece and fries chatting up with the locals about who knows what. When shortly after, a group of tax collectors and sinners following the smells of fish grease and Lowry seasoning notice Jesus up ahead. The closer they get, the more intrigued and curious they become. They all turn to each other, whispering and wondering, who is this man? See, they had heard about this man at the local bar downtown. Can you see them, church? This band of social pariahs inching closer and closer to Jesus' table. They hurry, they grab their food, and quickly they catch a seat at his table. And the text doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus was talking about. But it was good enough to make this group of social outcasts curious enough to sit and listen. Oh how we could learn from these words. They sat and they listened. This is coming off the hills of what happened before Luke 15. Jesus is going about great crowds are traveling with him and he's just giving these folks a hard, a bunch of hard sayings. Things like the cost of following me. What life will be like for those who say that they're followers of Jesus. One must leave their brother, hate their sister, their father, their kids, their, their family. To be a Christian. Those are hard sayings and he's killing them softly with these sayings. He's saying things like if salt loses its saltiness, then what use does it have? And right before we get to our scene. Jesus says to the crowd, he who has ears to hear, let him near. So who was it that comes near to him? There it is in verse one. The tax collectors and sinners were the ones who drew near. And then Luke introduces the religious elites, the Pharisees, the scribes in verse two. And there they are a couple of tables down in the reserve section. They're beside themselves because they can't believe that Jesus would be with this kind of folk. How dare he? In their minds, they're saying. Jesus is a Jew. You know what Jewish culture is like. Jews don't hang out with folks that ain't Jews. Jews are spiritually clean folk. They don't hang out with folks who are not spiritually clean. They they are an ethnic homogenous group. What does Jesus do? Come here, tax collector. Come here, unclean person. Sit with me. Break bread with me. It can't be they're saying to themselves. More so that he's claiming to be the king of Jews and yet his actions are not adding up to his words. In other words, Jesus was doing the unthinkable, the impossible, spiritually clean people don't sit with and eat with and talk with spiritually unclean people. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time sitting in verses one and two this week. Then, just as I thought I had a handle on this text, the more pressing question began to leap off the pages, as I'm sure it's leaping off in front of you now. Who are you? Are are you the Pharisee? Are you the scribe? Or are you the tax collector? Are you the religious bystander or or are you the sinner with ears to hear? See, religious folk tend to think that they know God better than everyone else. Mm. They sit on the sidelines or up in their lofty towers, peering down and over on us lowly folk. They say, they, they judge people and say, I don't like the way they're walking. I, I have an issue with the way that they're using their words and saying things. They, they see faith as intellectual hoops to jump through and conquer. They see other Christians and say to themselves, no, no, little, little Sally and Bob, they, they got it wrong. That's not how you do Christianity. They're saying all the wrong things. They're hanging with all the wrong people. You fill in the blank. You were there. I was there. You've done it. I've done it. The religious hang out in echo chambers. They enforce the status quo. They compare notes or how well one is raising their kids versus the other. The religious keep their distance from Jesus because they're afraid of relinquishing control and uh, and knowing what that might do to them. But the sinner, oh, the sinner, he or she comes across Jesus and sees what could be. They get a glimpse of what ought to be. They they see Jesus and something inside that begins to move and shake the hair on their skin, begins to rise, and this feeling that is so foreign but somehow familiar starts to say to them from the deepest part of their soul, that's where I'm supposed to be. This is who I've been longing for. But unbeknownst to this group of sinners and tax collectors here eating with Jesus. See, they thought that they came up on him. But when in fact it was Jesus who was the one actually looking for them and found them. See, I I don't want to get ahead of myself, but friends, what we come to learn about God here is that it doesn't matter what you've done or not done in life. It doesn't matter where you've been or where you're going. And, and he knows all the ways that you have messed up. He knows where life has brought you now in this moment, sitting in church. The things that, that, that haunt you at night. The things that you know that if this person ever knew, what would they think of me then? Jesus is aware. Jesus knows Jesus knows you've been up to no good. He knows what you've been hiding and still and still he comes to find you. I know I'm preaching to someone this morning who needs to hear that God will seek you out despite what your history says. Despite what your story has been told up to this point. Because he is a God that rescued those who need saving. I thought that would have caught a few of you, but here's my argument. That's the idea behind Jesus receiving this group of sinners and tax collectors. See, Luke is writing the word receiving the verb in the middle and passive voice. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but it should. That is to say that Jesus was waiting on this crew. Typically, when you're sitting and you welcome someone, you just come up on them. But Jesus intentionally, strategically put himself in a spot because he knew who was coming. Jesus picked this place on purpose. Luke is letting us know on how God deals with us sinful folk. He is saying that God is not surprised. God is not overwhelmed with the messes in your life. He doesn't care how much money you have or how much money you don't have. He's not concerned with what people say about you. And in fact, here we see Jesus coming to be in the middle of these folk mess. And what a word to a people today. Jesus isn't concerned about what you've done. He, he actually comes down and, 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 and puts his hand in the middle of your mess and get his hands and feet dirty. He says, "I'm not concerned. I don't care." What life has done or what life has told you to be. I want to get in it too. See, see, Jesus is so much of God that he can simultaneously handle your circumstance while being what you need to be free from your circumstance. Oh, that's a good God. But that's not all. No, God wants to be with you so bad that he'll do it by any means necessary. Just after hearing the commentary about his actions. Jesus looks over to the too cool for school crew, those Pharisees, those scribes, and he's hearing them. He's hearing them chatter and whisper about him. And so Jesus, in his good fashion, finishes his fish, wipes his chin and mouth. He wipes his hand and he he looks over and he says to them, here it is, verses four and five. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. It all began with a birthday. It was Saturday, June 23rd, 2018, and young Piripat Knight, as they called him, was turning 17. A milestone for most young people. He and his 12 other Thai football teammates were out one night near the Tham Luang cave system in Thailand. These young boys and their young coach were no strangers to this cave on this particular night so much so that they would often hike deep into the cave as a kind of rites of passage for their new team members in order to, to get their name written on the cave walls. And, and they would go as far as five miles into the belly of this cave. But this night, the wild boars, their mascot, didn't anticipate the kind of surprise or trouble headed their way. What was supposed to be a normal night of fun turned into a two week rescue mission. The rains had become so dense and began to fill up the cave with water, and the team was so deep in the cave they had no way of getting out. So they did the next best thing they swam deeper into the cave until they could find some dry ground. Two weeks. Two whole weeks, teams attempted to pump out water, trapped, hungry, lonely, scared, cold, oxygen, being eliminated hour by hour, minute by minute. These young boys and their coach were literally standing on death's door. Can you feel it? The agony the anxiety, the shoulda, woulda, couldas. The rescue effort involved more than 10,000 people, more than 100 divers, scores of rescue workers, representatives from over 100 governmental agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 police helicopters, 7 ambulances, 700 diving cylinders, and the pumping of more than a billion liters of water. Friends, this is the ultimate rescue mission. And all I'm trying to say is if human beings can mount a rescue mission to this degree, then how much more will your Father in Heaven Move time and space. Reach down and do whatever he needs to save a wretched person like you. Is there anyone here this morning that knows what I'm talking about? You know a thing or two, or a time or two, where God, out of nowhere, plucked you behind up out of some hard stuff, set you on feet with solid ground, showed up in your life and did the unthinkable. You were down and out, and God gave you the grace to lift your head, to see the sun rise the next morning, so that you could stand on your own two feet. Things were going one way, and God, in his most godly way, shows up, and somehow things began going the other There it is. I know, I know I'm standing on exegetical, solid ground this morning. Notice, notice the circumstances the shepherd had to endure for him to get his lost sheep. He first has to go back into the open country. A better ending would be in a wilderness. I don't go out in the woods that often. (laughs) I definitely don't go out in the woods at night. But we've moved to Indianapolis, and I've learned that... um, Indianapolis love to go hiking. You guys love the outdoors. And typically, in this ancient culture, if the shepherd would have lost his sheep, that means he would have noticed that the sheep was lost by night. He had come in from the day, he's counting his sheep, and bam, one's missing. There are usually scary things in the wilderness. There are usually really scary things in the wilderness at night. And what does this shepherd do? He drops everything and he goes after his lost sheep. He doesn't stop searching until the sheep is found. And did I mention, Did I mention that, he, that, that not only does he go out at night, but he does not return to the next morning? Our, she, our shepherd gets here. He stops at nothing. He finds his sheep? And I don't know about you, but if I had 99 other sheep, I probably could afford to buy one extra one. (laughs) Church, aren't you glad that God doesn't deal with us in these ways? That he doesn't just throw people away. That he doesn't just say, well, I've got a billion more people. What does one matter? That he chases after you despite you being the reason that you are in the predicament you're in in the first place. When Luke writes the word loss in verses four and five, he's trying to say that the sheep isn't just lost. No, friends. The sheep is headed towards destruction, the sheep is headed towards death. And you know who else was headed towards destruction had it not been for the Lord? You. Me. We too are like sheep who stray from our great shepherd. And there are some of you who needs to hear that God has been chasing you. He's been pursuing you. He's been going after you. And the moment you decide to let him take hold of you, I promise you'll be glad he chased you down. It's a good feeling. The story ends with Jesus saying that once the lost sheep was found, the shepherd lays him on his shoulders and carries him back home. What imagery. It doesn't get any better than this. When God grabs hold of you, he picks you up. He puts you on his shoulders and he says to you, oh, I got you, little one. That's what those soldiers Thought during that Battle of Dunkirk. That German aggression was barreling down French and British forces on that jury May 10th day in 1940. The Allied forces were stuck between a sea of water and German guns. With no reinforcements on the way, the Allied forces were preparing for death. Unbeknownst to them, Hitler had decided out of nowhere to halt his army. They were chasing the Allied forces, and Hitler says, Stop. Then Winston Churchill had declared a day of prayer throughout Great Britain, and, and with no other options, Allied commanders ordered an evacuation by the sea of over 40,000 soldiers, or so they thought. But civilians began praying. And some started giving up their fish boats and their houseboats. And they started to go about the English Channel to rescue those soldiers. I can't make this up. And, and, And as the boats were going back and forth, clouds began to roll in. Covering, hovering over this rescue mission. It was a kind of blanket shielding the British forces from German air bombs. Friends, that's a lesser, lower picture of what God has endured to reach you. Your situation is no matter, no match for him. Your circumstance doesn't scare him. He looks at you and says no matter what. And when the job is done, he calls all of heaven's angels and they sing. Because my sheep has been found. Friends, this is God's joy. This is God's joy every time he finds one of you just when you think when you think back to what Jesus has done for you it ought to produce a kind of gratitude in your heart because you know what gratitude produces over time praise and when you begin to praise joy fills your heart And it's joy that says to your circumstance and to my circumstance that if God could have done what he did back then, then I know he can do what he wants to do now. Praise helps you helps you be reminded that joy can't be shaken, that what you're struggling with and dealing with in life cannot overwhelm what God has already done for you. That Jesus really does get down in the bottom. That he really does get his hands and feet dirty and praising God for what he has done in your life is the gap between what isn't and what will be. It moves from despair to love to hope. Joy is what Rings in heaven down to earth when God shows up and finds you. It says to your anxiety and depression as you're living in the bottom that the balm that gets you through is the lifting of your hands, the shouting of God's name, and holding on to all the ways that He's been faithful to you yesterday and the day before and the day before. That's good news. It says to those around you that that there is something powerful and good about God. When they see his people who aren't robbed of their joy when things get hard. That's why Luke tells us that he the, the, the shepherd calls his friends in to rejoice with him. There is something missional about your joy. There is something missional about the toughness and the in the in the dreariness and the in the. Hardness of life. It's not wasted. God is doing something, if not in you, but through you. I'm done now. May the Lord bless you real good. But before I go, let me tell you who Jesus was referring to in this story the whole time. See, Jesus told us in John 10, he is the good shepherd. Yes, he did. I am the good shepherd. That the one I was talking about, friends, was me. That that it wasn't just sheep that I carried on my shoulders, but I carried this old, rugged cross. And I didn't just carry it, but I hung on it too. And when I hung on it, I took you, I took me with it. When I bled and I died, I took you with me too. And the old folks back home in my church would say, when, the, when he died, the earth would rock and shake like a drunken man. And the earth went dark in the middle of the day. And he died, y'all. I know Easter's next week, but he still died, y'all. And early, early Sunday morning, he got up with all power in his hands. He got up with all joy and resounding bells and sits on the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He got up. And guess who got up with him too? All you sheep who went lost in the Let's pray.